Well, I just have a few announcements for us this morning. Uh, the first one is that, we, you know, we're, we're sort of redoing different sections, different areas of the church. I already mentioned that we're focusing on children's church, we're focusing on worship, we're focusing on hospitality. And so that was our children's church. We're building that up, we're investing in it, we're, we're just honoring those who bless our kids. How many of you guys know that our kids are, are the future? I mean, really, they are. They're the future of the church. And so we want to invest in that and... Uh, Look, it's, it's just like this. You know, 50 years from now, how many of us are going to be here? But all those kids are going to be here. So if you want the church to survive after we're gone, they're the ones who we've got to give it to. So we, uh, we want to honor them and honor the people that work with them. Uh, and then for worship, this next week on Tuesday at 6 o'clock from 6 to 7.30, we're going to be having a, we're calling it a jam, jam session, a jam workshop. I don't remember exactly what we're calling it. But basically, it's like this. If you say, you know what, I might be interested in doing worship, I might be interested in singing, I like playing a guitar, or, you know, recreationally, I sing in the shower or what have you, but I'm not so sure about just jumping up on the stage and, you know, it's kind of intimidating and singing in front of a bunch of people, that's fine. Come on this Tuesday, there's no obligation, there's, we're going to be playing some worship songs and some, some other tunes and we're just going to be jamming together uh, and there, it's not going to be a big thing, we're not going to you know, take down your social security card and, and make you sign up for anything. It's just going to be a fun time to encourage one another, to learn a little more, maybe a little more skills, you know, fine-tune those skills that you have. Uh, and it's going to be just a, a fun time to get together and, and play music. All right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Thank you, Debbie. And I always forget this part, and that is that, you know, we also have support staff for our worship team that we cannot live without, and that is a soundboard and overhead. Uh, who right now it's Christy and Debbie this morning. And we have some dedicated people who come in every week and, and run that stuff. So maybe you're saying, you know, I'm not that musical, but I would be interested in helping out the worship team. So come this Tuesday, and we'll throw you up there. You can push the knobs and, you know, whatever, turn the knobs and push the buttons and, and screw with it, and hopefully we'll figure out how to fix it again by next Sunday. But, you know, you could come and, and just experience that and see if it's something that you might want to do every, you know, once a month or something like that. Uh, to kind of give some relief to some people. So we're building that up as well. Uh, how many of you guys would say that's, that's exciting? That's exciting to build that up. Yeah, amen. And then at the end of the month, we'll talk a little bit more about hospitality. That's sort of the third one we're going to be focusing on this season. Um, so that'll, more announcements will come for that uh, later. So this Tuesday, 6 to 7.30, show up. We'll be right here. Uh, we're going to sing. We're going to play some instruments. It's going to be a fun time. And, and everyone is invited, you know, even if you don't know anything about music or you feel like, I'm not that great, just come. Just come and play. It's going to be fun, right? Okay. Uh, and the next thing is that, what was that? Somebody, oh, no, okay. The, <laughs> the next thing is that uh, I am personally going through this library. I love the fact that we have a library. I want to make it a library that we can uh, build up that will actually be like a study library, where if you have a question about the Bible or you want to read the Bible or eventually if we get interns or that kind of thing who really want to delve into scripture or theology, we're going to have a library as a resource to say, come, you know, learn, study, uh, and just sit in there, relax, read some books, that kind of thing. The thing is, a lot of the books we have back there right now are not necessarily conducive to that. They're not necessarily that helpful. So there's like some Christian fiction, like what I call Christian romance novels, you know, where it's like Jim was a drug addict, but then he met Kathy and turned his life to Christ and all this stuff, which is, you know, it's fun to read sometimes, but it's not necessarily 
you know, going to help you figure out what the book of Jeremiah is about or something, you know what I mean? So I basically have kind of gone through the library and taken a lot of those books that we're kind of, kind of get rid of, and I put them on a table in there, white table. It's filled with books. So I encourage you, if you're interested, because they're good books, if you're interested, go back there after church and grab, there's some boxes underneath. You could fill a box of books. You can, you know, take those home. And some of them are actually like, there's like three copies of The Purpose Driven Life. That's not because The Purpose Driven Life is a bad book. It's just because we had four copies. So we're keeping one copy and we're giving rid of three. You know, so there's stuff like that. Um, and then there's other books that are a little bit outdated or something like that. And, and if you, you might go back there and you might find a book and say to yourself, how dare he get rid of this book? This book is so inspirational to me. Let me just tell you right now, I'm getting rid of it because I want you to have it. I want you, I'm, I love you so much. I want you to take it home and be, have it be a part of your library. So go, I encourage you after church, go in there, filter through, take as many as you can because, you know, whatever we don't take is, is going one way or another. So uh, just the stuff that's on the bookshelf still, I'm still working through that, so just ignore that. Anything on the table, white table in there is free to go. All right? Good, thank you. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say, oh, I, you know, I, um, is that this last week, I, yesterday, was down at Regatta Park with uh, Edward O'Lara and his wife, Caitlin, and their kids. And they had some, a birthday party for uh, Ethan and Elizabeth. It was a great time. They were our interim pastors before I was here. Uh, and they are, they are based down in Toledo, but they came up here and served our church for a number of months. And it, they were just really a great blessing. And so he said he wanted me to let you know that he's thinking about you guys and praying for you and, and you're on his heart. And we're actually going to invite him next month. He's going to come and give a sermon for us. And, and yeah, which is great. Yeah, and I haven't actually heard him preach yet, so I'm looking forward to that too um, because I've heard a lot of great, great things about him. So just want to let you know about that and, and let you know that he loves you guys and is thinking about you too. He's, he's a good singer. He is. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he does all sorts of stuff. He's multifaceted. Yeah, he does all sorts of stuff. <clears throat> all right, let's pray. Lord, we uh, come before you. We come before you in this service at this time and ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you have for us in your word. Come and bless us with your presence, Lord, and um, teach us that we might see you and seek you out and find you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We lift up this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dive into it. I'm excited about today. So we are today in, in 1 Samuel 16, we're in this series, right, where we're sort of going through the book of Samuel and discovering uh, this idea of a child of promise. What does it mean to have a child of promise who's sort of coming as a king to rule? Last week, a few years have passed since, since last week's sermon. Uh, last week, remember, the Israelites decided that they... Uh, want a king. So they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king now. We're, we're through with having judges or what have you. And Samuel's upset about this. God is a little upset about this too, that the people have rejected him as their king. But he gives them a king. He says, all right, go out and get a king. And this is the guy I want you to find. And uh, bring Saul to Samuel. And Saul uh, comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And, and he finds Samuel. And Samuel basically anoints him with oil and says, you're the guy. You're the, you're the king. Uh, and what follows is sort of a brief, very brief um, a few chapters on sort of Saul's exploits of what he did after that. And that, that little section of, uh, you know, 
whatever that is, four chapters or so, covers a span of probably, probably 15, 20 years or something. Um, so it's not, you know, this happened and then this and this. It's not really like that. It's, there's a bit of space that's sort of built into it. Um, and uh, it talks about how Saul uh, went on several, was very successful in some military campaigns against the Philistines uh, and against the Amalekites. And uh, it also talks about a few times, every single time that Saul kind of has a victory, there's sort of this little red flay that kind of starts popping up in some of these things. So, for example, uh, Saul's about to go fight the Philistines, and he knows that he's supposed to have a sacrifice to God to sort of honor God and seek God out when he's going to do this campaign. So he wants to have a sacrifice, but Samuel's not there. Samuel's supposed to be the one who does the sacrifice. He's supposed to be the one who leads Israel in those prayers. And so Saul kind of waits for a bit, Saul, Samuel's not coming, and Saul's thinking to himself, man, you know, this is, this is the time we should be attacking if we're going to, you know, get ahead of this war. This is now the time, and Samuel's not coming. So Saul decides, you know, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm just going to do the sacrifice myself. So he does the sacrifice himself, and just as he's finishing it, says, just as he's wrapping it up, up walks Samuel. And Samuel says, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? You couldn't wait around for the way that God wants to, God has a certain way he wants to do this, and you were just impatient. You decided, you know, you're not going to wait for the way that God wants to do You're going to take your own way. And uh, he says, Saul, this is serious. God is going to tear the kingdom away from you. He's going to hand it to somebody else. And that happens a few times, a few different things that Saul uh, sort of misses. And we sort of get this idea that I talked about last week, that when you put one person in charge and you sort of put that person up there and say, I have a king now, what happens when that king starts to mess things up? He starts to lead all the people astray because he has that place of authority. And that's why it's so important that we remember that we need to keep God as the king of our hearts, put Jesus on the throne of our hearts, and follow his authority, his example. When we put a person on that throne, once that person starts to go astray, we start to follow them. So Saul has been informed now that he is no longer going to be king. And that's sort of where we pick up the story Today we're going to finally meet this king that we've sort of been building up to. I told you this is a series about David, and then we spent a month not talking about David. Um, and I, that's intentional. There's a build-up to David. Right? There's a build-up to him. There's something that he's coming into. Uh, we've been searching for David for a while now. Through the stories of Hannah, through Samuel, through Saul, we've sort of been getting ideas of maybe what this guy's going to be like. But now we're finally going to meet him. And he turns out to be not exactly what we thought, what we expected. He's not a king at all, actually. Um, he's, a, he's a boy. He's a young boy. And uh, it's sort of a, a loss of expectation. But before I turn to the passage for today, which is in 1 Samuel 16, I want to just read a, just a, one verse out of Hannah's song that we looked at uh, three weeks ago. Hannah, if you remember, she's about to have a baby named Samuel. And she sings this song to God. And in the song, she says this. She says, he raises up the poor. God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of, uh, inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. The 
pillars of this earth do not rest on, um, and of course this is metaphorical, but the pillars of this earth, what is holding this thing together, the, what is holding our whole cosmology together, our whole society together, this is not based on human effort. Humans don't cause the sun to rise in the morning. Humans don't cause the plants to grow. Humans don't cause the manifold diversity of creation and of animals. All of those things issue forth from God. God has established the pillars of the earth, and on them he has set the world. This is the Lord's doing. Let's keep that in our mind as we read 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to go ahead and read this to you just to receive it. So the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. So fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you, as a cow. And say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. So Samuel did as the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came out to him trembling, and they said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab, and he thought, Oh, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, or his height, or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. He looks, they look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, ah, there remains uh, yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And then he sent, and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Thank you, Lord, for your word. <clears throat> when we start this story out, God asks Samuel a question. He says, why, why are you still grieving over Saul? Hey, Priscilla, what up, girl? He says, why are you still grieving over Saul? I've rejected Saul. Saul's done, man. You got to move on from Saul. I think a lot of times in my life when I have been devoted to something in particular, I remember actually there was a, a, a time before I, we received the call for this church, there was another church, an Assemblies of God church, that was in need of a pastor. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe this is God's will. You know, you pray about those things. You got to pray about those things. And I remember um, I was praying about it. I was at convention, actually, in May. And uh, I was praying about it. And my wife, who I, you know, a great pastor gave me some great advice early on 
when I was in pastoral ministry. He said, I'm going to give you some advice. He goes, listen to your wife. <laughs> listen. I, I, he didn't know me that well, so I know, but probably, you know, I don't know if that's a, you know, a slight against me, like, like, oh, I don't know. I can't hear from God. But he just says, listen to your wife. He goes, you know, oftentimes when I haven't heeded my wife's counsel, I end up in places where I, I don't want to be. And he said, you know, and all the times that I have heeded her counsel, I've never ended up in places that I haven't want to be. That's just an observation, he said. So I, I listened to my wife. I heed her counsel. She's a very wise woman, and she's not even here to hear this. But, she's, but I, she's somebody who hears the voice of God, and so I trust, you know, what she says. And she had already said that this, this church wasn't, she felt like this was not where God was leading us. But I was sort of holding on to it, you know. Because, you know, I, I just... At the time, I felt like, I, you know, I just really feel like, you know, ah, maybe it would be nice, you know, just to have a, have a position, you know, to be able to pastor and that kind of thing. At a convention, I remember, it was kind of these funny things. God speaks to us in all these different ways. I had a pen from their church with me, and I was using it to take notes. And we stood up for worship, and, um, uh, you know, we were worshiping, and I felt like I heard God speaking a word to me on something else, and so I, oh, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to forget. And so I sat down, and I was like, oh, where's that, where'd that pin go? I need to find that pin. And it was so funny, because the word of the Lord came to me really strong. He said, let it go. Let it go. And I, at the moment, I was like, well, let the pin go? <laughs> I couldn't. And I knew that he was talking more than just about the pin. You know, I knew he was talking. He just said, let that go. Let that go. God sometimes tells us, look, you've got to move on from that. I'm done with that. That part of your life, area of your life, that sin in your life that you have sort of been grieving over, we're done with that. How long are you going to keep on grieving over that? How long are you going to keep on holding on to that? Just let it go, man. Let it go. Listen to God saying, there's an area of your life, there's a sin in your life you keep on coming back to. You need to let that go. You need to just say, okay, I'm done with that. Move on. Move on, Samuel. Saul is over. I've rejected him from being king over, over Israel, and I have provided for myself a king. Now, that's really interesting. I provided for myself a king. If you remember when we, we skipped this part, but if you had read along when Saul was anointed king, when, they, when he brought him out into the congregation and said that this is the guy, he was a head taller than everybody else. And everybody, I'm sure, was like, oh, man, this guy's impressive. You know, this guy, yeah, I could see this guy being our king. Yes, that's the one. And all the people were, were most of the people were very excited about this guy. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. You know, and, and he begins to have these exploits, and the people are rallying behind, oh, this is good. You know what? Sometimes we rally around behind somebody that we have decided is going to be the king, that we've decided is going to have authority. And he turns out not to be so great. And here the Lord says, actually, I have chosen somebody. I've picked somebody out, Samuel. I've provided for myself a king. You guys have had your king. Now let's see what happens when I provide you a king. Let's see what happens. And this is our first introduction to David. So in verses 2, he says, uh, verse 2 and 3, he's commanded to go, and and he says, you know, how can I do this? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And if he, you know, he knows that, God has rejected him as king. If he hears that I'm going out there and finding somebody else, and he's going to kill me, man. That's, not, that's natural. That makes sense. Usually people in power don't like to be challenged like that. That makes sense. 
Uh, and God could have been a little bit more specific here, couldn't he have? He says to Samuel, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, this guy who lives in Bethlehem, and I'm going to show you what to do. Yeah, God, you could have been a little bit more specific with your instructions there, right? I mean, the guy's got eight sons, you know. So you couldn't have narrowed that down a little bit. You couldn't have said, and, you know, he's a shepherd or, like, and his name starts with a D or something like that. You know, give me a hint or something. I'm supposed to be doing a job here. But actually, God designs this as a test for Samuel. He designs it as a test for Samuel. It's really interesting because all this time he's been testing Saul. He's been giving him opportunities. Saul wants you to do things like this. Let's see what happens. And Saul's just been falling flat on its face. And so now it's sort of like, now it's Samuel's turn. All right, Samuel, I want you to go here, and we're going to see what happens. I'm going to guide your steps, and you just got to listen to me, and we're going to see what happens. The test is this. Can you recognize the chosen one of God? Can you recognize the chosen one of God? The ability, this ability to recognize who God has chosen is incredibly important. And we're living at a time, and I've talked about this last week, but day and age where things want to sit on the throne of our hearts. There's all sorts of things vying for our attention. Can you weed through that? Can you filter through the noise and recognize the chosen one of God? Can you recognize the one that God has chosen to be king. It's very hard. It's a matter of sight. It's a matter of seeing, of seeing with your eyes. That we're going we're to discover how this happens here in Samuel's life. So Samuel comes to this town of Bethlehem. Uh, some song said it's a little town of Bethlehem, right? There you go. And he comes to this town of Bethlehem, and he shows up, and the elders of the city come out to him, and they say, what are you doing here, man? Everybody knows that Saul has been rejected as king. And everybody knows that Samuel might be looking out to anoint somebody. And if Saul found out that the elders at Bethlehem had allowed Samuel to come in and anoint another guy king, that could come down real heavy on them. So there's a historical thing going on here. This isn't, you know, when I first read this when I was younger, I was like, what are they so upset about? No, they're, they're saying, are you coming here peaceably? Or are you coming here to anoint somebody and then start a revolution? Because if you're interested in using Bethlehem as a revolution, we would really appreciate it if you didn't do that. Because we know what happens in revolutions, right? Usually the people who start it, it doesn't end up so good for them, okay? So... Are you coming here peaceably? Samuel's like, yeah, no, I'm coming here peaceably, yeah. I'm just here to make a sacrifice. The cost of rebellion is real here. There is a risk in seeking out and recognizing the chosen one of the Lord because the people who are in power already don't want that to happen. They don't want to give up power. And I want to tell you that in your own lives. You think about your own life. The things in your life that have power right now They don't want you to find the chosen one of God and displace them on the throne. People in power like to retain power. That's something we talk about all the time in, in, uh, you know, social studies or sociology or what have you. The people who are in power will do everything they can to stay in power because they're in power. Who wouldn't want to be in power? Once you get there, you don't want to give up your spot. And there's things in our hearts. There's people in our lives. There's a relationship or there's a 
uh, uh, an idol, perhaps, or something, a sin, or something like that in our hearts. That when you start to kind of get closer to God, and you start to sort of seek God out, and you start to say, okay, well, what does God want in my life? You know, I want to sort of walk away from alcohol. I might want to start walking away from this relationship that's unhealthy. I might want to start, you know, doing this. And the things in your life that have power are going to grab onto you as hard as they can. They don't want to let you go. And that's not just in a spiritual sense of, you know, uh, spiritual activity or demonic activity. That's just in a natural sense of relationships, of, of our world. When something has a claim to you, it doesn't want to let it go. Today, I was very excited. I was very, um, uh, very happy to read this morning. I was just flipping through the news a little bit and found out that not all the news is great, but you know what? Today, I found a great story, and that is that Oscar Romero... Uh, today is canonized as a saint. Raise your hand if you know who Oscar Romero is. Wow, Priscilla, good for you, girl. Oscar Romero uh, today is canonized as a saint. He's a Catholic, or he was a Catholic archbishop uh, down in El Salvador, and San Salvador is the main, uh, the capital. And when he came to power, what happened was, this is in the 80s, and there was a, several dictatorships going through uh, Central America at the time, doing some really despicable things. And the Archbishop of San Salvador had died. And so the people in power, the politicians who were, you know, the dictators are sort of in, in charge of the city, they said, we would like somebody in there who's not going to rock the boat, who's going to, you know, kind of go along with what we want to do and not, you know, maintain the real strict separation from the Catholic Church and the state, which, is, which was happening at the time. We don't want somebody to get all political and, you know, start raising suspicions or what have you. So they actually um, invested very politically in getting Oscar Romero elected as the archbishop of the city. Because Oscar Romero was seen as a very moderate, even keel, doesn't rock the boat, you know, pretty conservative guy that, you know, he's not, he's not going to speak out against anything. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, there's atrocity. Oscar Romero was, he was kind of viewed as this guy who, you know, he would sort of say, oh, well, that's something of the world and we shouldn't really worry about that. So they elect him as archbishop. They put him in the place. And um, about two months after he got there, I think it was two priests were murdered in, in the rural area of El Salvador by government forces because they were sticking up for some of the farmers that, who had been just really mistreated. So government forces came in and, and assassinated them. And Oscar Romero presided over their funerals. And at that point, about two months into his ministry there, something just snapped in him. Something really flipped. And from that point on, he was, he was such an advocate for people who were being oppressed. And the thing I really love about Oscar Romero, I, I want to eventually get some pictures to put in my office, and one of them is of Oscar Romero. He's very inspirational for me. The thing that I love about him was that he was not afraid to call people out uh, on the government and to call people out on people who were fighting against the government about atrocities that they were doing to the people in El Salvador. He would get on a radio every night. This is an amazing thing. He'd get on a radio every night and read lists of names of people who had gone, who had gone missing, who had disappeared during the day as a way of holding the government to account and say, we're not going to allow this to sort of slip beneath the covers and kind of you know, get swept away. That's what a lot of times systems of oppression, when they're hurting people, they want all that to kind of remain secret. Because once it starts coming to light, people start getting upset about it. So he would read the names of the people who were missing. 
And they started calling me out a nickname. It was the voice for the voiceless. And Oscar Romero did that for about 10 years before he himself was assassinated. He was uh, in his cathedral giving mass. And as he was doing the Eucharist, which is the point where you do communion in a Catholic church, masked gunmen came in and, and murdered him while he was in the middle of the Eucharist. And to this day, no one has ever been charged by that, for that murder. And so he became a sort of a symbol of what it means to be a Christian in a time and a place where there's such an oppressive system of silence and darkness and don't talk about that and let's just sweep that under the carpet. And he said, no, we're going to talk about this. We're going to bring this out. The cost of rebellion against these principalities and powers in our lives is real. We shouldn't diminish that at all. I have little sympathy for people who call out uh, people, for example, who are addicted to alcohol and just say, you just need to get over it or something like that. You just need to just decide that you're going to stop and stop. That is not how this works. The cost of rebellion is real. The cost of stepping out and saying, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to start to displace the people and things that are on the throne of my heart and put Jesus on the throne of my heart. There is a cost there, and it may even cost you your life. And we shouldn't be uh, scared to even say that. We have in the back, um, and, and Donna does a great job of bringing this to our attention, we have in the back a little display called um, Open Doors, which is all about persecuted Christians around the world. And we live in an area where that's not actually a thing, where we can, we're here right now worshiping. We don't have to worry about that. But there's other parts of this world where this would be illegal, actually against the law, to gather like this. The cost of rebellion, of putting Jesus on the throne of your heart, is real. It's very real. So when Samuel comes to the city, he's not, he's not coming naively. He's not coming uh, thinking that this is all going to go smoothly. He says, yes, no, I come peaceably, though. I, you know, I'm, I'm just here to do a sacrifice, which is a little underhanded. You know, you're like, well, are you really only here for the sacrifice? No. Um, but I can go, that's another sermon about the ethics of lying. So talk to me about that later if you're interested. I have a lot of really interesting ideas about that. But um, Samuel comes there. He sanctifies Jesse and his sons. He says, we're going to have a sacrifice. He pulls them out. You know, they come to the sacrifice, Jesse and his his seven sons, and he sees the first guy, Eliab, and he says, oh, surely this guy is the anointed one. Remember when I said God is kind of creating a test for Samuel? And Samuel just bombs it, right? The first guy walks in the room. Oh, this guy's tall. He's handsome. This has got to be the guy. He's beefy, you know? This has got to be the guy, right? Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord, Surely. I did this, uh, I had heard this rumor, and so I did some research and did some calculations, and I found out that since 1900, 118 years ago, in presidential elections where the height difference between the two candidates is more than a half an inch, so perceptible height difference of an inch between the two candidates, the taller guy wins 70% of the time. Isn't that interesting? The taller guy wins 70% of the time. There's something about tall people. We're like, man, I, you know, I don't know about their policies or anything, but yeah, there's something about the fact that he's taller. That's some, that just tells me something about him, you know. That really tells me he's, he's going to be a good leader, you know. <laughs> and that happens, that's, that's across party lines. That's Republicans and Democrats. For, you know, 70% of the time, if, if you're an inch taller, you'll win the presidential election. 
And the ironic thing about this is that Samuel has struggled against precisely this with Saul, hasn't he? Saul has only been concerned about the appearances of things, of doing a sacrifice, of uh, you know, doing that, not caring about the inner heart work that God is requiring of him. And Samuel falls into that trap at the same time. And so verse 7, God says to him, look, no, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature. I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see how mortals see. They look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart. And this is really pointing at what God is interested in. What God is interested in, how to find out who the chosen one is. The idea is that appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. Don't we know that in our time, in our current day and age? You know, what somebody looks like on their Facebook page is not necessarily how they are in their everyday life. You know, that's a real problem for people who are on Tinder. I'm not personally on Tinder. I'm very happy married. But for people, you guys know what Tinder is? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, you're not on it. (laughs) We need to get some millennials up in here. Tinder is a dating app on your phone. All you get is a picture of a person, and you decide are you interested in this person or not. And you swipe in one direction if it, you are, and you swipe in the other direction if you're not. And if they see your picture, and they swipe in the right direction, and you swipe in the right, then you guys you know, get connected on, through the app. Yeah. For all you singles in here, though, you know, it's not the best way to meet people. But you're basing 100% of your idea of who you should be dating on one profile picture. That's not a good idea. You could do a lot with a profile picture, you know? I'm not that great with images, but I can make myself look pretty good on a profile picture, you know? If you get the lighting just right, you know, maybe. Or maybe the shading just right, depending. And uh, that's not what God is interested in. It's very deceptive. It's a very deceptive way to see people. In First Peter... Peter writes, don't adorn yourselves. He's talking mostly about women, but I think that this is a general a good idea. Don't adorn yourselves outwardly by, you know, making your hair all fancy and wearing a lot of jewelry and gold ornaments and fine clothing and really, you know, pumping yourself up. Rather, let the adornment be of your inner self with a lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. It's very precious in God's sight. So Jesse brings out his sons, and every one of them kind of comes before, and there's probably some, some nice-looking guys in there. Obviously, Eliab, he's some, you know, good-looking guy. And uh, Samuel says, no, this isn't it. This, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It, every one of them. None of them are a suitable match. God has not chosen any of them. There's a lot of counterfeits in this world that want to come up and take that place of authority in your life. And you have to be able to be perceptive. It's a matter of sight. Right? So I said, it's a matter of sight. So when it says that Samuel looked upon Eliab, and he said, oh, this guy looks good. It's a matter of sight. Can you see rightly? There are times when God allows us to go through some trial and error to get to the truth. We need to, we need to work on how we perceive people. Okay, so verse 11 Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? Eh. And he says, no, nah, there's, well, there is, there is one, there is a youngest one. Now, isn't that funny? He didn't even, Jesse didn't even imagine. Like, David's not even an option. 
Jesse's got eight sons, and he's like, well, I got to have somebody stay with the sheep. David, obviously you're not the one, so you stay with the sheep, and we'll let your brothers, you know, show. He's like, it's like, not even, it's like a second thought. Jesse didn't even say to Samuel, hey, Samuel, here's my seven sons. Now, just to let you know, there is an eighth one. Um, He's with the sheep right now, but I'm just letting you know that. No, he's not saying anything like that. David doesn't even get on the ballot. He's not even, you know, he's nowhere an option. And so Samuel's like, is this it? Are are these all your guys? And Jesse's like, oh, you know, now that you mention it, um, there is another one. And it slips my mind. What is his name? Uh, David, that's right. Uh, And he's with a sheep right now. And Samuel goes, "Call, call him. Get him in here. I don't know. Maybe he's the one. You know, does he have a younger brother? Is there another one out there somewhere? <clears throat> the fact is, and this is, this is a really important part of this, David is discounted, right? Because the idea is that there's better people, better suited to do this job of being a king. His brothers would be much better suited at this. David, you just, I mean, you're great and all, but you should probably just stay with the sheep. Probably just stay with the sheep. The fact is there is probably somebody out there. I want you to hear me with this. Probably somebody out there who can do a better job at what you do than you can. There's probably somebody out there. I know that you can flip on your television or flip on your radio station and you can hear a better preacher than me. And I'm okay with that. I really am. I like listening to better preachers than me because it's encouraging to me. I love that. And I'm not at all saying don't do that because, man, you listen to five preachers in a week. That's good for you, you know. Get that word. Get it however you can. The fact is that God, though, has called me to this church. He's a, Thank you, Christy. And he's appointed me to be the pastor of this church. So if I'm going to preach a sermon, I'm going to preach a sermon. By gum, I'm going to be a pastor. And I'm not gonna, it's not going to bother me that there may be somebody better equipped out there than me because he hasn't appointed them. He's appointed me. And let me tell you something. There's a better evangelist out there for your coworker. There's a better counselor out there for your friend who just went through a loss. There's a more compassionate person out there to deal with the people that you come into contact with. But they're not here. God has appointed you. I don't care if you think that you're not equipped enough. You're the one that God has appointed to your, to your ministry, to be an evangelist, to be a compassionate friend, to be a prayer warrior. Some people say, look, I want to be a prayer warrior. I want to be, be on the worship. I want to be, you know, whatever. I want to work with the kids, but I just feel like I'm not equipped to do that. I'm not, I'm not capable of doing that. Let me tell you something. There's worship leaders out there who can make Satan himself fall on his knees and sing praises of there's, there's children's workers out there who have been training up missionaries for years in their congregations and who can run, you know, a multifaceted, you know, multi-age level thing. And, man, that's great. God bless them. But you know what? They're not here. God bless them wherever they are, <laughs> wherever they are in the world. Be with them. You're here. Amy Sim McPherson had this. She used to tell a story. She said, there's a pastor, and, and he wants to redo the gardens uh, around the church, you know, get, kind of spruce up the place, get some landscaping done. So he has some bids. He calls out some bids, local guys, and he gets all these bids in on his desk, and he's kind of reading through them. And he gets to one bid, and it says, 
It says, here's a man who, he's been a gardener for 50 years. He's had a very successful landscaping business all around, all around the, uh, the county. And even the, the county seat has him coming in and, and doing their grounds. And here's his idea. He can turn your church into the most beautiful oasis. He can install water features that no one has ever seen before and fragrant flowers. And he can have a little prayer garden and he can install all of these things. And he can do it and he can do it cheaply and he can do it well. And people will come to your church and they'll say, my goodness, look at the landscaping on this place. This is just beautiful, just gorgeous. And then the pastor says, wow, this is pretty good. And he flips the page. And all it says on the next page is, but he won't. <laughs> he can make a great garden. He can make your church beautiful as all get out, but he won't. He won't do it. And then he... The pastor says, okay, so he goes to the next page. And the next bid says, here's a man, he's been a gardener for about six months. And he works his home garden. And he has some nice flowers in there, but some of them, you know, are not so great. He does not know how to install water features. Um, and prayer garden, something he could think about doing. He might be interested in trying that. But he might take a little more effort, and it might take a little more time, and it might take a little more resources. And the pastor flips the page, and at the top it says, but he will. But he will. Let's not be a congregation that's constantly looking around for those who are more skilled but not present. Let's be a congregation that says, well, Lord, I, I don't really know how to give my testimony to my coworker, but I will. I don't, I'm not really that great of a Bible teacher. I don't know if I can teach my kids about the Bible that much. They might ask questions that I don't know the answer to, but I'll try. And praying with other people, that's not something that I'm really excited about. That's not something that I really can do very well, but I'll give it a shot. Let's not be the congregation that sits around hoping for the next person to come in looking for that next leader, looking for that next worship leader who's going to come in and, and take us all to the uh, exalted mountaintops of our worship experience, but they won't. Let's be the kind of congregation that looks around and says, who has a heart for worship and will? Who will talk to my friend? Who will pray that prayer? Who will reach out to the teenagers in our city? Who will? And maybe we don't get it right all the time. But I want to tell you something. The world discounts people who do not appear to be equipped for the ministry. The world says to them, you better just go start tending the sheep because you're not going to be the one that's called. You're definitely not the evangelist in the room. So, you know, hang out with the sheep. We'll just see what happens. And the Lord says no. And this is something very important because God does not call the equipped. He equips those who are called. If you're called by God to go do something, God's going to give you the strength and the ability and the skills to go do that. And it may not be the most beautiful garden, but it will be a garden. And that most beautiful garden or whatever, you know what, honestly, I'm not interested in that. Because that's built by somebody who's not here. I'm interested in what God's doing in your life. I'm interested in what you're passionate about. How is the Spirit of God working among us? That's what I'm interested in. Amen. <clears throat> now, we, um, we meet David. He comes in from the sheep. And immediately we're sort of, 
<coughs> this is interesting. The Bible does this every once in a while where it kind of like flips, it flips something on its head. Because God's already said, don't look at it, the outward appearance of a person because I look at the inside of somebody's heart. He's already said that. So you kind of expect David to be kind of, you know, ugly, right? Right? I mean, that's, God kind of set you up for that. But it actually says specifically, and you don't get this very often in Scripture, where you get a physical dis- description of somebody. He says it was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. That's really interesting, isn't it? What does that tell me? What is God trying to explain through that? <clears throat> what it tells us is that physical appearance is not a prerequisite. Your appearance is not a prerequisite for ministry. God doesn't only choose those who are most skilled, who appear to be the best. But your physical appearance and your skills is also not a detriment to your ministry. For God, it's, it's not an issue of, well, this person is uh, more skilled, so I can't use him. This person's less skilled, so I can't use him either. Right? For God, those things are inconsequential. So David actually ends up being quite handsome. And God does that. Sometimes he calls somebody who's skilled to lead in worship. Good. Sometimes he calls somebody who's not skilled. Good. I'm more interested in the one who God calls. I'm more interested in discerning and discovering the chosen one of the Lord than putting my expectations on them. In fact, I remember the, one of the best worship leaders, you guys are great, by the way. Who loves our worship leaders? Adrian and Stan. Amen. One of the best worship leaders I, I ever had was uh, when I was in middle school youth group, and he was a guy named Jason Manwinkle. I pray that he listens to this tape at some point. I'm going to send him a message on Facebook to check it out. And Jason would get up there, and I, I, by the way, am not saying anything that Jason wouldn't say himself. He played guitar. The man had the pitch quality of, like, a rusty tin can. <laughs> he was like, like, if he's playing music and he's supposed to be singing here on this, like, level pitch, he, he was, like, here. He, like, inevitably either a half step above or a half step below where he was supposed to be. And there was times when you were, we were standing in worship, and it was like, wow, I don't know if I should be following his guitar or his voice in what I'm supposed to be singing here. Um, and later, years later, I talked to them about it, and he, because he was talking about worship, we were talking about worship and that kind of thing, and, and being skilled in worship. And he said, you know what, honestly, I did that because he knows that he's not that, you know, um, he's probably much better than he is now than he was then. I love you, Jason. Um, but he said, I know I wasn't, that, I wasn't that good. And I told him, you know what, honestly, though, those times were the most amazing worship times because you were anointed by God. It didn't have to do anything with the skill set you had. It had to do with the fact that the Spirit of God was moving through you. And when the Spirit of God moves through you, he can use a rusty tin can. You know what? He can use... He can use a, you know, a Jeremy Camp. He can use a, a great worship leader like that. And he can use anybody. So don't discount yourself because you're not skilled. And don't discount yourself because you are. When the anointing of God comes upon you, he provides everything that you need to carry out the ministry that he's called you to do. And now, David is there. David is called forward. 
right? the chosen one. And I use that word because a lot of times we, um, we use that word about Jesus, right? that he's the chosen one, he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah. But a lot of the prophecy, a lot of the words that we get out of the Old Testament that point towards Jesus originally applied to David. David ends up being this figure, this idea, really, not just a person, but an idea of somebody who would come in, who would be anointed by God, and who would bring peace to the people. David becomes that idea. Uh, And Jesus himself points back to some of the Psalms when he's talking about himself, for example. And the Psalms in their original, they point to David. So when I talk about the chosen one of Israel, uh, originally it's David. Eventually, we find Jesus. But here's David. Here's little David. And he comes out, and God has chosen him. And ultimately, this question of who is the chosen one of the Lord, and can we perceive him rightly, ultimately, about a thousand years later, applies again in the city of Bethlehem, right? Can you perceive, can you see the chosen one of the Lord, even though he's only a little baby in a manger? And once again in the story, a shepherd comes into the field to attest to this glory. And once again, you have uh, people coming from far away, magi coming from the east, to glory over this little baby. But can you see, can you see beyond physical appearances, can you see beyond expectations, to see a king and a little boy tending some flocks or in a little baby in a manger? Here in 1 Samuel, a young boy is anointed to be king. And the hope of Israel is within him that one day he might bring peace to their nation. And then one day in Bethlehem, a king is born on whom the hope of the world rests. That one day he might bring peace to all people and heal the relationship between God and humanity. Can you recognize the chosen one of God? I want to leave you with one last thought. And that is that as we begin to kind of go forward in this and we kind of track through David's life a little bit, hitting some highlights, and more and more you'll begin to see that David doesn't necessarily turn out to be as great of a guy as we sort of expected. He ends up at times being really a terrible person. He ends up murdering somebody, committing adultery, doing all sorts of terrible, terrible things. But all through that, Can you perceive how God has anointed him? Can you perceive his life trajectory? Because just like Saul, David's an incomplete king, not a perfect king. We're going to discover that. He's not a perfect king. He is chosen by God, but he's not perfect. And so the expectation remains that maybe one day God will send a perfect king. But what I want to ask you, and this is the last thing I want to ask you, is can you recognize the chosen one of God? Can you recognize him? First, recognize him in your own life. Does he rule in your heart? Does a chosen one of God rule in your heart? But secondly, can you recognize him in our world? Mother Teresa has this beautiful quote. She says, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus. I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. If you remember, there's a story Jesus tells. He says one day that uh, 
all sorts of people are going to come before the throne room, and they're going to be divided up. And to some of them, he's going to say, well done. Thank you. Good job. I was sick, and, and you tended to me. I was in prison. You visited me. I was naked. You gave me clothing. I was hungry. You gave me food. And uh, the people are going to say, well, what are you talking about, Lord? We, we never, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty? Or... And Jesus says, every time that you did that to somebody else, to the least of my brothers and sisters, you're doing it to me. And then he turns to the other people, right? And he says to them, get away from me. I was hungry. You didn't feed me at all. I was sick, and you let me die. I was in prison, and you thought I was just far gone. You didn't want to come visit. And there, I mean, I'm sure, aghast. God, oh my goodness, Lord, we would have never done that. When we, when did we see you hungry and didn't feed you? Of course we would have fed you. We, we would have clothed you if we'd seen you. We, when did we ever see you like that? I don't recall that at all. And the Lord says to them, as surely as you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Can you perceive God in our world, the hurting Jesus, the sick Jesus? This is why I bring it back around. There's people in your life who need a testimony. There's people in your life who need prayer. There's people in your life who need to be encouraged and lifted up. And don't Put that off because you don't feel equipped to do it. Because God does not call the equipped. He equips those who are called. And when we begin to step out in faith and say, you know what? I may not be the best whatever, but I will. When we begin to step out in faith and see God minister through us, we begin to minister to Jesus. I encourage you this week, those people in your lives the first encouragement, of course, is always put Jesus on the throne of your heart. Perceive that he is the king. But then the second encouragement for this week is perceive Jesus and the people around you. Find him. Find him somewhere this week. Where is he? Is he down at the skate park? Does he need a hamburger? You know? Is he over at Shiloh Ministry? Is he, over, is he in your workplace? Is he in your classroom? Perceive Jesus somewhere. A minister. Step out in faith. Do it. You can. You will. I'm going to pray for you. All right? Let's just receive from the Lord. Lord, we just receive your spirit. We receive your spirit because your spirit is the, the one that empowers us to do your work. Just like in Acts, where your spirit fell upon the church and gave them gifts and abilities to spread your gospel. I believe that right now your spirit can come upon us and give us the tools and that we need to do your work. Equip your saints, Lord. Equip your church, Jesus. We are your hands and your feet. We are your ambassadors. So Holy Spirit, would you please come and fill our hearts. Fill our capacity. Our capacity to love, let it expand. Our capacity to minister, let it expand, Lord. God, expand our capacity to sing. Expand our capacity to pray. Expand our capacity to show mercy, Lord. Expand our capacity to reach out to someone who's in need, Jesus. Expand our capacity to see you around us, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come and empower us. Expand our capacity to love, Lord. 
Give us the tools that we need to minister to you in our communities and our families, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We give you glory and honor and praise for that, Lord. Acknowledging that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the Lord of our hearts. You're the Lord of our world. God, we have not created this earth. But you built the pillars on which the world stands, and you have established it upon it. We acknowledge that today, Lord. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with great rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Greet somebody next to you, encourage them, love on them.